Hello, friends, and welcome. This is episode 11 of Syracuse Sports. My name is Brent Dax. So great to have you here as we are presented by our friends at Krause Health, the exclusive healthcare partner of SU Athletics. Did you get here because you're a subscriber and it was right there on your Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Amazon? We love you. That is the best way to ensure you're getting new episodes of the show when they pop up. So please follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you found us another way, hey, we still love you. But you should subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, all those places mentioned, or wherever you listen. You can get your voice heard on this program. The voicemail line is 315-552-1964. You can hit me on Twitter, Brent Axe Media. And you can email the show, bx at syracuse.com. And don't forget, uh, not only do you get Syracuse Sports twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays, we're also doing a show after every Syracuse football game, Syracuse football post game, And we've done them after Colgate, Western Michigan. We'll have one for you after the Purdue game upcoming this weekend. So all that happening here on Syracuse Sports. Shout out to my guy, James, who sent me this email. And it kind of sparked a discussion here that I want to bring onto the podcast. He says, Uncle Brent, I have an idea for a question that you could ask the podcast listeners. What tradition would fans of Syracuse football like to see start, resume, or improve for home games? And he gives a couple suggestions here. I'd like to see some kind of better entrance when the team takes the field. Right now, it's kind of, oh, okay, here they are. Fans, I think, would do a nice job of cheering them on, but the entrance is blah, in my opinion. We're never going to beat Virginia Tech at their entrance, but that doesn't mean we can't have a great one as well. James also suggests that they adopt a song between the third and fourth quarters. Wisconsin's got jump around. Nebraska plays Thunderstruck. What can Syracuse adopt as a song there? So James came up with a spectacular mailbag question. There are two great suggestions from him. I wrote a story about this on Syracuse.com. The feedback is pouring in, and I wanted to bring some of it to the podcast here. And this is a discussion we'll keep going here, and hopefully more ideas will spawn of it. But just to give you a few more things that you guys said out there, Matthew Bowman wrote, uh, wrote in and said, Brent, at one point the Dome used to play Don't Stop Believing." Later in the game, between the third and the fourth quarters, crowd would get into it. I think the ads on the video scoreboard have taken away some time from it. Maybe they were trying to synchronize, you know, the main hook of the song that comes a little bit later on. My two cents there that I'd like to see them bring that back. You know, Syracuse adopting some sort of in-between period song, and they did something. There was a little bit of a highlight reel, and they were playing, um, I don't know the name of the song, but it goes, oh, 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 oh. My very bad impression of that song there. I think they're trying to get something like that going uh, using the scoreboard, but uh, I would love to see something like that adapted uh, here in Syracuse. Terry says, Brent, I think Syracuse needs a better pregame atmosphere around the Dome. It would take the city and Syracuse to come together and work out a space, but go south to, say, Penn State and see the difference in attitude at game time, the smells, the sounds, the tailgating scene. It's half the excitement of college football. Now, I'll say this, Terry. I think that Syracuse fans do a good job with what they're handed. There's some hardcore tailgaters out there, but it is hard to feel connected. You've got people scattered all over the place, Sky Top, Around the Dome, Marshall Street, the Quad. There's no really a central area where tailgaters 
can kind of come together and pregame activities can come together other than the quad. And some people do go to the quad and that's a cool thing. The band plays on the steps of Hendricks chapel. So there are some things there, but I do get what you're saying there. Uh, Michael Devoli says orange turf. Why not? We got black turf down at SUNY Morrisville down the road here from Syracuse. Let's see that. Dan, who goes at Boone Cuse on Twitter, says, see Virginia Tech. See, that's the thing. Enter Sandman. Is there a better entrance in college football than that? And by the way, Syracuse is going to be a part of that as they go to Blacksburg this season. So you can't have that. But this was a common theme from people that tweeted in and sent emails that they just need a better entrance. Tyler suggests uh, some entrance music. Shook Ones Part 2 by Mob Deep, right? Uh, Kurt says, please encourage Syracuse to liven up their football players' entrance into the Dome. It's pretty uninspiring at this point. Like I said, this was a common theme. Richard Schultz, I think, had an interesting suggestion here when he brought up, and he said he actually suggested this to Darrell Gross once upon a time, that Syracuse have something similar to what the Buffalo Bills have, and that is the Bills make me want to shout. Go Bills, if you're watching on YouTube, right? You see the shirt. I would love to see Syracuse adopt this. If it was an original song, maybe a local artist can write it. Now, they have down the field, of course, the alma mater, which they can play. But can you come up with an original song like the Buffalo Bills did? Because that is half the atmosphere at home games at at, uh, at Highmark Stadium. I was going through different names in my head. Ralph Wilson Stadium, Rich Stadium, Highmark Stadium at Buffalo. They have that song. It unites the entire crowd, and it's about as close to like a college football atmosphere as you can get. So I think Richard makes a great suggestion there. Paul writes in to say a totally, or I'm sorry, Jim writes in to say, totally agree with James. Wish that we had a fight song that would get the fans into the game. Another suggestion for that, not just a fight song, but some new traditions that would keep the fans excited and engaged, try and make a better home field advantage for our teams. And look, half of this is on the fans themselves, right? Like, This just goes back to, I used to go to games with my dad and there would be games when, you know, Syracuse would have a sizable lead or maybe it would look like both football and basketball was winning and he would want to get out of there. And I'd be like, dad, where are we going? Like, there's no traffic to beat or anything. Like, did you have, (laughs) do you have a date or something? Like I wanted to stay the whole time. By the time the Western Michigan game was over, there was barely anybody left. When they sang the alma mater at the end of the game, they were singing to empty bleachers. Like, where are Syracuse fans in a hurry to get to? And by the way, the players themselves, it affected them because half the team wanted to get out of post game after they beat Western Michigan because they had dinner reservations. So I don't know. It's a Syracuse thing, and it's got to stop. Like, if you're going to make the time and the investment to go to the game, like, hang at the game. Right. The, the, seeing this cavernous, empty facility in the middle of the third quarter because Syracuse is up big. It's it's just one of those habits that has been passed down generation to generation here in Syracuse, New York. And I just do not get it. Um, I like this one from Jim, different Jim, who writes in and says, Brent, the pregame run on of the SU marching band is currently in front of about of 100 fans. What to do about that? How about a chant to bring the team onto the field? And he suggests kind of a around-the-dome sweeping orange, orange, orange chant. Not bad. Now, what Syracuse has tried to do, and they tried it against the Western Michigan game, is 
just before the team runs on the field, which is kind of the smoke entrance, and they play the horn. And I agree with people that are saying that that that's okay. It's like a five and a half for me, if to use a Dave Portnoy scale on that sense. So what can they do better there? That's a suggestion from Jim. But what Syracuse tried to do, and is trying to get going at home games this year, is you can download an app on your phone, and it's basically like a light show that theoretically everybody holds up their phone, and you would kind of see this light show around the dome before the game starts. I love the idea. It's modern. Certainly kids and their phones, and everybody's got a phone in their pocket. It gets them involved. I think you got to turn off the lights at the dome for this to truly work which they don't do they dim the lights a little bit but i think you got to make that place dark and make it like spooky and and just get people revved up and by the way like that'll just inspire people oh it's dark in here do that light show thing about 25 percent of the dome got into it for the western michigan game so look i give syracuse credit they're trying to incorporate the scoreboard they're trying to kind of mesh tradition which is old school with some of the new tools that they have the scoreboard, people have their phones. When the wireless is finally done and is, is fully enacted in the dome, JMA Wireless Dome, right? I think we're getting there, but I think you've got to keep your ideas coming. So uh, 315-552-1964, that's the voicemail. Hit me on Twitter, Brent Axe Media, and, of course, the email is baxe at syracuse.com. Speaking of a traditional sport with a modern spin, The Savannah Bananas are one of the wildest things in sports. They have completely turned the sport of baseball on its head. They have re-engaged a younger generation and put such a unique spin on baseball. And the Savannah Bananas are in Syracuse this week. They're going to play Thursday, September 14th at NBT Bank Stadium. It is the hottest ticket in town. And my guy, Biko Scala, Syracuse alum, the play-by-play voice of the Savannah Bananas, sat down with him here on set, and we learned about Banana Ball and the phenomenon that Banana Ball is and and how Biko ended up being their play-by-play voice. Syracuse guy's all around, but uh, he is certainly not in the traditional play-by-play seat at a Savannah Bananas game. To steal a phrase, these games are bananas. Let's hear from Biko. Who's got banana fever? This guy has got banana fever. Biko Scala, play-by-play voice of the Savannah Bananas, Syracuse alum on the Syracuse Sports Podcast. What's up, sir? Oh, my gosh. So fired up to be back in the Salt City, baby. Fired up. We're fired up you're here. We're fired up that you're in person. He was in the queue, so we're like, hey, let's get him on the show. Let's show him the bank vault that we uh, we broadcast this <laughs> yeah. thing from. And, wow, Biko, people are fired up, man. You see this week in and week out, the traveling circus that the Savannah Bananas are. Okay, let's do this. For people not familiar with this, yes. kind of like, what is this thing? I've seen a TikTok or two. I've, my kids talk about it, which is amazing that my daughter, who's 16 years old, is obsessed with a baseball team. And it's not the Boston Red Sox. It's the Savannah Bananas. So... As best as you can, just just tell us about this phenomenon and what people are going to see if they go on Thursday in Syracuse. Sure. Well, I would like to be able to say if you watch any of our broadcasts on YouTube, which are free to watch, you will get a much deeper understanding of the game than any words could possibly describe. But it's it's basically bizarro baseball, right? Like it's baseball, but maxed out to the entertainment, speed, fun, goofiness. 
um, and and probably a little mixture of like a Broadway show and uh, a, you know a little bit of a rock concert. Like there is music going all the time. We have a dancing first base coach. Our umpire is dancing. We're going to celebrate runs with dancing. We're going to celebrate doubles with dancing. Guys out on the field are going to be doing Harlem Globetrotter-esque tricks. That's what I relate to. I'm I'm a little older. If you're of my generation or older, this is like the Harlem Globetrotters of baseball, basically. Yes, for sure. Except like the one, the one part of it that we cringe at is obviously the Globetrotters win all the time. This is real stuff you this guys is, are doing. Yeah, these this are real is games. Insanely real competition, which makes the feel out on the field, we call it trick play feel, like very important on if you're maybe winning an inning by a couple runs and there's two outs and you hit a ground ball, you're like, oh, okay, here, I can go behind my back or do a little dribble, I can go over the head. Like that's when you start getting globe trottery, or yeah. we'll have a center fielder, we'll backflip and make catches and, and all kinds of goofy stuff like that. 360s behind the back. Like that is super cool for us. But if it's a big moment in the game and you try and pull that off and you then hurt your team, you will have a whole lot of players who are not happy with you. It's the most incredible mix of entertainment in a real game that I think I've seen. Like, you know, the NBA All-Star Game or any of the All-Star Games, there's a show, but they're not really trying. Maybe like the fourth quarter, they really crank it up a little bit here and go at it. The bananas and the party animals. Yes. Your, your, your touring partner here. Yeah. These are real games. And so what's interesting about this, Biko and I will talk, were talking a little bit before we went on here, is these are the last two games on the tour. So you're in Syracuse on Thursday the 14th. Then yes. you go to Cooperstown. And while there's no trophy or anything in this, right. you want to win. Oh. Right? This is this oh. is it, right? Oh. So tell me yeah. about the real competition that that's on the line here amidst the insane circus party-like atmosphere that we'll talk about a bit more coming up here. For sure. I mean, like, a, a really important part of Banana Ball is the caliber of baseball players that we have. Like, people always ask, are you grabbing dancers and teaching them to play baseball or vice versa? And it's like, how could you possibly get dancers and teach them to play baseball? It's like <laughs> the most skilled, yeah. hardest sport there is. It's a, you're hitting a round ball with a round bat. Um, so we have a lot of former minor league baseball players. We have tons of D1 guys, tons of, tons of D2 guys who are really good. Like <laughs> the, D, the difference between D1 and D2 is, it, I mean, there's a difference, but that's, that's a whole other topic. Um, but anyhow, we have a lot of really good, really competitive baseball players who now are super bought in on Banana Ball, and they live together, they are really good friends. I mean, like, bananas and party animals will room together on the road. Outside of the diamond, they can be thick as thieves, but as soon as the two-hour timer starts and it's time to play ball, both these teams want to win so badly, and if you ask any player on either side, they will say this is the greatest rivalry that they've ever had because 75% of the 87 games on this tour have been bananas versus party animals, so they just keep bashing their heads together over and over again. Have you found, it is incredible how quickly this has become a phenomenon. They're selling out AAA stadiums, maybe maybe some major league stadiums in the future. Like this thing just keeps growing at such an accelerated pace. But there's been enough time where if I am a Division II baseball player, yeah, have you found there are players that would rather want to play for the Bananas or the party animals then go toll around in single A baseball or, or, or something like that. Has, has the bananas or the party animals been like an end goal for some of these players coming out of college? When it comes to, yeah, it depends on their expectations in life, right? So like 99% of the time, if someone gets drafted or if they get a free agent offer to go into affiliated ball, they're gonna take that. What we see a lot more often is guys who have been in affiliated baseball for 
four to seven years or so, and maybe they've gotten up to double A or even triple A, but they're starting to realize the cog they are in the system and, and their chances of actually making it to the bigs. And that is where we win. That's where we get those guys. So um, like we have Ryan Kellogg just started the last game for the Bananas, seven years in the Cubs organization, came to us and just did on Saturday night in Milwaukee, the entire Napoleon Dynamite dance on the mound. <laughs> he is six foot six, a lefty. Everybody cleared the field after he threw a one, two, three inning. And he was like, all right, I'm done for the night. I'm going to expend the rest of my energy on the Napoleon Dynamite dance. He pulled That's off his incredible. jersey, had vote for Pedro underneath. It was unreal. Um, so we're getting a lot of that. We have a guy like Zach Phillips, spent four years in the Kansas City Royals organization, was in AA last summer, came to us, has been awesome out of the pen. He has gotten four affiliated contract offers since he's been playing for the Savannah Bananas, has denied all That's of them. That's pretty good. Yeah, offers to go straight back to AA. And he's like, no, I'm having too much fun. This is now the future and the dream that I have developed. So you see the quality of players. And when Pico said earlier, behind the back, like these guys are doing that. They're catching the ball in between their legs, behind the back, in the course of the game. So that's in the course of the game. There's choreographed stuff like you brought up, the, uh, the, the dance from Napoleon Dynamite. This is very social media friendly. So, Biko, is that why the Bananas, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why the Bananas are as big as they are. It's a credit to Jesse Cole, the owner. He's the guy you see in the, the suit, like the man in the yellow hat from <laughs> Curious George. Correct. He's got an incredible story about how he got into not only baseball, but with the Bananas and, and his efforts. And there's a lot of reasons why this thing has grown to the level it has. But would you say TikTok is really what, what's at the core of the popularity of the Bananas? 100%. TikTok, and, and then, you know, you throw Instagram and Twitter. And yeah, like me, I, I watch TikTok videos on Instagram a month later. <laughs> sure, that's, that's for me. sure, for sure. So, but however you get it. You're As do it. I. I'm actually not really in on the TikTok world. I'm like a classic Twitter That makes scroller. me feel better. I'm yeah, better. And, and then, you know, you'll see the little TikTok thing there. Uh, but, yeah, so TikTok is why it's blown up to what it is now. Fans first mentality and, and treating fans the best way possible is the reason why the bananas have gotten to where they could possibly be. So they, they started in 2016 as a collegiate baseball team and they sold out 18 of 25 games, but because of the show surrounding the game, very affordable tickets, and then the all you can eat type deal in Grayson Stadium, which is, you know, you get your $25 ticket, you come on in and you have burgers, fries, hot dogs, you know, chicken sandwiches, cookies, sodas for free for the entire night, as much as you can have. Can't beat that. All of that is the amalgamation that turned into 88 straight sold out games until I even came aboard in 2020. Um, so like, and they were starting to be a little bit of a viral sensation, but that is when the TikTok was born, 2020. I mean, COVID is really what, what kind of boomed TikTok. And then that's where all of a sudden we have over seven and a half million followers on TikTok. So now. I wanna look at some core things on the field because while some of some of the dances and the stuff that happens around the game is kind of choreographed like you said the players work on their dances and their TikTok videos in the course of the game so basically so here's rule number one win the inning get the points right you're basically trying to win every inning and there's essentially a walk-off every inning right for for those not familiar how does that work well that's part of like the genius of banana ball i'd say to toot our own horn is that like we thought of what are the most exciting plays in baseball and how can we get more of them? The walk-off. 
So now you can have eight walk-offs in a game if the home team wins the first eight innings. And obviously, they're going to be up by eight points at that point, so they're probably not going to walk off the ninth. Um, but anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. It's like match-style play. So if you play golf, match-style, I mean, if you're just watching any tennis match, if someone wins six games to one, and then in the next set, someone wins six games to five, it's one set to one set. So that is what we have done with the innings of baseball. It's a two-hour time limit. Fact. So this is no matter what, two hours, it just shuts down. Or how does that work? To a point. So like we, if the two hour time limit hits before we get to the ninth inning, then you are now in the final inning. It's not like the game ends when you snap your fingers because you can't do that to baseball with each team getting three outs and it gets muddy. That'd be a hell of a thing if you did though. Correct. Like, it, it gets- Everybody's it, done. Right. Right at the two hour time limit. But it gets spooky and we lose the amount of fairness in the game, right? So we're gonna play nine innings unless we run out on our two hour timer and all of a sudden that inning is the last inning in which every run counts as a point now. Um, so if you win an inning, you get a point, all of a sudden you're just fighting points, points, points all the way. And then once you get to either the ninth inning or whatever inning the two hour timer runs out in, now every run in that inning counts as a point, which allows you to, if you go into the ninth inning down 4-1, well, you can have a little three run rally and, and, and have some life in, in this. You can't step out of the box, that's a strike. Fact. There's absolutely no bunting. You will be ejected if you try to bunt. Which is probably my favorite rule. I absolutely love that. Batters can steal first base. Yes, which is something that the Atlantic League tooled around with um, in, in past years as well. So, you know, wild pitch, pass ball, take off. As soon as you leave the batter's box, it is now a forced play at first base. No mound visits, no walks. Right. So which, how does that work? That yeah. takes a little explaining because okay. you can fire four balls to a batter, but when ball four is thrown, all of a sudden the batter will start sprinting and then all seven fielders behind the pitcher and catcher have to touch the ball before it is live. <laughs> that is fantastic. This just sounds like you're a kid and you're in the backyard and we're just making up stuff. And here you have a professional baseball team that's doing all these things we thought of as a kid before our very eyes. It's it incredible. Is, it is such a good analogy, and we've had we've played against former Major League Baseball players three times this, this year. A lot of former Major Leaguers have played on the Bananas, and that is one of the most similar things that they say is like, oh wow, this, this just feels like I'm in the backyard again, except I'm also playing with insanely talented people who like, especially when we get former Major Leaguers, like the talent of the Bananas and Party Animals has usually surpassed the former major leaguers, depending on how fresh they are. Who are some of those guys? Who are some of those major leaguers you've had? So Jake Peavy was our, our first guy. He was with us in 2021 on the One City World Tour as a manager, because we went to his home city of Mobile, Alabama. Um, and then he was the first guy to play for us next year, which was 2022. He pitched with his gold glove on in Rickwood Field, the oldest stadium still existing in the country. So that was super special. Uh, Eric Burns was the Bananas head coach last year. He pinch hit himself in twice. Uh, first one, he actually struck out to lose the Rickwood game. And then he got a nice little pinch hit uh, single against the Kansas City Monarchs. Um, and, and then you get to the Johnny Damons, Johnny Gomes, uh, Josh Reddick. Uh, it, the list goes on and on. Even like guys like Doug Flutie, who are not former Major League Baseball players, but at 60 years old, still a great athlete, still playing in men's league and everything. And he, he can throw a great knuckleball. He was, he was on that show on MLB Network, throwing the knuckleball with Tim Wakefield. Like, yeah, we'll let him go out there with two outs in an inning and try and escape. Um, so you, you never know what you're gonna see. Couple more that are really cool. So if a fan catches a foul ball, that's an out. Fact. So can that end the game? Can that, like, that's just a standard rule throughout? Like. You get, now, think of the guys that bring, and gals for that matter, 
I saw a great video the other day of this girl making a terrific catch in the stands. <laughs> that, that came out. Yes, <laughs> that was great. That was great. You're just hoping for a, for a souvenir. Now you can get a souvenir and be a part of the game. And you've talked about here, and it's such a philosophy of the bananas, the fans' first mentality here. You're making them literally part of the game in this sense. Yes, and what's hilarious is when I was at MLB Network before the Bananas, I was in a production meeting one time and it was like F block, end of MLB tonight. They were kind of thinking of, oh, let's just create three rules. And Greg Amsinger, the host of MLB Network said, foul balls caught by fans are outs. You know, it'd be crazy all of a sudden home field advantage. That's the first time I heard it. And then two years later, I'm down in Savannah and Jesse Cole hands me a piece of paper with nine rules on it. And that was on there. I was like, whoa, time is a flat circle. Uh, but yes, you asked, can it end a game? It literally did in Kannapolis, North Carolina, a party animal in a one point game, line drive shot foul. And this kid Kamani snared it out of the air, bang, game over, pulling him out onto the field. He's celebrating with the bananas, doing their whole victory dance and, and celebration. Incredible. Yeah, so it's, it's super cool. And we've had uh, Josh Tolevsky, my broadcast partner, is our lord of stats. So, Josh, I'm sorry if I get this wrong. I think we're over 60 foul balls caught by fans. So, you are still seeing it less than once a game, although we do see it a lot more outside of Savannah than we do in Grayson Stadium just because a lot of it's covered. It's a little tougher to get a ball. And the other thing we should mention is uh, the nine core rules of banana ball. So, you don't have extra innings. You have the showdown tiebreaker. So, if we get to a showdown tiebreaker – at NBT Bank Stadium in Syracuse or in Cooperstown. Now, how does that uh, how does that work? It's basically like a penalty shootout in baseball. So you have pitcher on the mound, you have one fielder whose feet have to start in the infield grass, and the opposing team can send up any hitter they would like. So it's usually going to be pretty much the best pitcher against the best hitter, and you have to score an inside the park home run to get a point. If you hit the ball over the fence on the fly, the game is over immediately and your team wins. The other team cannot respond. But uh, if the ball stays in the park and you get inside the parker or you get what we call a showdown shutdown, which is a strikeout or you didn't make it all the way around to home, then the home team can win the game by doing just that inside the parker. Uh, if, you know, either both teams score or neither team score, we will go to round two. We take the fielder out. If both teams end up tied after round two, we'll go to round three in which the bases are loaded. The fielder's back out there and everyone who scores is a point. And then at that point, we will just go until uh, somebody wins, which was not how Banana Ball started this year. It used to be just three rounds of showdowns. If it's tied after that, it's tied because Jesse was really worried about a, the possibility of extra innings, of just a game going on and on and on. But then we had two ties within the first 20 games, and we abolished them. That's absolutely incredible. Yeah. So there's all this, and now, look, I'm only – just beginning to scratch the surface. If you get on any of the banana social media and just scroll down here, you're going to see flaming bats. Right. You're going to see, this was just the other night, the pitcher was throwing from a trampoline. They brought a trampoline out. He's jumping, he's flipping, he's doing sidearms. That was incredible. Uh, we mentioned some behind-the-back throws. You, I've seen pitches from center field come in. Um, people flipping while catching the ball. This is the best one, though. Stilts. You have a guy on stilts who is out there playing baseball. You got to tell me Stilts' story. How did, how did this guy land on the bananas? So he is from Ellaville, Georgia, a very small town, kind of closer to the Alabama border. And he showed up to our One City World Tour tryout in 2021 with the, the patented long blonde hair nearly down to his tuchus. 
and was trying out just as a banana ball player. Like, did not mention anything about stilts and would not have come close to making either team if he did not just perchance say, oh, I've got some stilts. Like, you think I should try and hit on them? We're like, yeah, buddy. Of course. See what you can do. We're trying to create the greatest circus in sports. So he comes out there, takes a BP on stilts. We're like, all right, we got something here. So he makes the team. Uh, he played some first base. We didn't have him pitch until last year. So the 2022 World Tour, he started pitching. And then in the offseason, he really grinded, upped his stilts from four feet high to five feet, and now has been... He was very effective on the mound for a while. You know, we try and set him up for success, two out innings where nobody is aboard. Um, but as this thing has gotten more and more competitive and the party animals are on more and more of a roll, his last three outings, they have absolutely smacked him silly. Um, <laughs> so I would wager as like, there is a really very serious competitive part of this whole thing with the bananas now needing to win one of these last two games to win the tour. I do not think you're going to see stilts on the mound. I'm sorry to anybody who wanted to see him pitch, but it has gotten too competitive and where I would wager he probably gets an at-bat. I would almost guarantee he'll, he'll get to swing it where he's just about a 300 hitter, which is incredible because it's tough to throw it that high with any kind of velo or spin, and he has figured out how to hit some gaps, um, which is insanely impressive. But, yeah, the, the bananas are a little spooked about possibly sending him out into the mound. This is banana ball. You have to account for stilts and the strategy. Correct. By the way, what kind of strike zone is that with a guy that's got stilts? It's enormous. I mean, it's, it's made up, like the strike zone is in the first place. But you, can, you kind of guess where his knees are. Like you can see where the bend in the stilt should be. It's basically like where his feet are up until up to, you know, the letters. Incredible. It's Absolutely madness. incredible. This happened the other night. Now, this is not common. You guys really go at a frantic pace here, two-hour time limit and everything, but there was a 57-second inning. How did that go so fast? And is that a record for Banana Ball, by the way? It's the record. It's the only inning we have ever had in less than a minute. So by an inning, you know, it's a half an inning. It's three outs for a pitcher. But minutes per inning is a statistic that we track vigorously and is a pretty good way of knowing how you are as a banana baller. So Brett Helton of the Party Animals is the Greek god of MPI because he averages about three minutes and 20 seconds per inning, which is insane. If you're averaging under four minutes an inning, you are still very quick. And often, if you're working that quickly, you're also having success on a traditional ERA strikes sprint, which is our version of walks uh, type standpoint. So yeah, uh, DJ the Invader, who is a guy who showed up at our most recent tryout with like an otherworldly space helmet on, wouldn't take it off. And we're like, oh, this is kind of a funny bit. So we just created DJ the Invader. Um, we still have not seen his face. He goes out there, he throws low 90s, uh, a really nice change up, slider, cutter, and pitches to contact a lot, which is the key to a quick inning. So it was a four pitch inning, some hard balls hit, but straight at guys. And all of a sudden you incredible. have the fastest inning in sports history. Absolutely incredible. A uh, couple more things for you, Biko. Uh, so, listen, you went to Syracuse. Yes. And, look, Syracuse University obviously is, it is, for lack of a better term, it is a factory for play-by-play -play guys. You know, if you want to get into play-by-play, -play, Syracuse University is at the top of your list, right? right? And I feel like, and Biko was actually in my class at Syracuse University, yeah. and I feel like you kind of went down the traditional path. You go to Syracuse, fortunate to do the things you do at Syracuse, make the connections, and you end up, working somewhere that you really loved working at MLB Network, right? Yes. You would have been fine with that. Oh, yeah. While pursuing your dream of doing play-by-play. -play. But how did this opportunity come along, and how did you get in on the ground floor of something here? And this is where you will always have this. Like, you've heard about all the names, and we can list them all. 
in the history of play-by-play -play that have come into Syracuse. No one has the story you do. <laughs> Tarico doesn't have this story. Okay, Costas, McDonough, none of these guys have this story that you were in essentially on the ground floor of the rise of one of the most unbelievable sports stories I think we've seen this century and, and will ever see and how the bananas just completely turned baseball on its head. Yeah, it's mind-boggling because I did some college summer baseball broadcasting throughout my time at Cuse, and that's what I wanted to get into, probably hoping for like a single-A or double-A job coming out of school, and then MLB Network comes to the university, and all of a sudden I'm like, I can't say no to that. So then I end up in Secaucus, New Jersey for a couple years. Love it, a dream job in, in many respects, getting to bump elbows with Pedro and Millar and DeRosa and HR. I mean, it's Sean Casey. The list goes on and on. Super-duper cool, but also... Uh, even though I got to watch 150 Yankees games and was paid for it a year, uh, I felt my, I felt my neck turning towards the window and saying, I kind of want to be back in the ballpark. And that is where I joined the STAA, Sportscasters Talent Agency of America. I can't recommend it enough to anybody in college, getting out of college. I'm still a member, even though I have no designs to leave Savannah anytime soon. Um, but John Chelsnick does an amazing job creating, you know, he sends you basically openings in the, in the country or even outside of the country three or four times a week, plus some really good advice. I saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of broadcasting opportunities, was trying to stay in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania type area, and then I saw the bananas. And it was a job description unlike any other, and I watched the 20-minute video on the team, which was from 2020 back to 2016 in their inception. It's like, holy, you know what? I have to see this with my eyes. Um, and all of a sudden, shooting three batters of play-by-play, -play, interview with the man in the yellow tux from the Bayonne Public Library, and I had a two-and-a-half-month contract down in Savannah for what ended up being the 2020 season of half capacity, only three teams in the 16-team league, masks all over the place, rubber gloves, like everyone was ready to wash the dishes. It was, <laughs> it was a bizarre world, right, for everybody, but it ended up being a, a pretty lucky step for me. Now, you brought that up. So... I think of the Savannah Bananas, and I, I think of the TikTok videos, the tour that you're on now, but you do have a home base, Grayson Field, 4,000 seats. It is old school as it comes, and there's pride there. The city of Savannah loves that. They love their history, right? So what's that dynamic been like to now you're in AAA stadiums, maybe major league ballparks down the road here, that the crowds are getting bigger and bigger, but your home base of Savannah, where this whole thing is anchored in, and I think people take the most pride in. Oh, 100%. And we have, we wouldn't be where we are today without the fans. I mean, the, the company that runs the Bananas and the Party Animals is called Fans First Entertainment because everything we do is with the fans in mind. So, you know, the Bananas had sold out 88 straight games before I even stepped foot in Savannah, Georgia. Um, and now we are north of 280 straight games sold out. So it's, the fans are so key and obviously the Savannah fans are so key. So there's like, as much as it's easy to have a wandering eye and you end up in Sacramento and Indianapolis and, and these 15,000 person stadiums and it's like, whoa, like this is pretty sweet. This would take four games in Savannah to bring this type of environment and this atmosphere to this amount of people. Um, but there's, there's something super special about Grayson Stadium. And like you said, we, we love, I say we, I'm a New Yorker. We love our history in Savannah. It's, it's such a historic city and the ballpark was built in 1926, rebuilt into a baseball stadium in 41. So, I mean, just going back to when it was a football stadium, it's now in its 98th year of existence. Um, it's, it's pretty special and we have to figure out a way 
to juice it a little bit. And, you know, it, we will never take away its charm and, and the historic parts of it, but also like, hey, we can maybe fit a thousand fans in here, a thousand fans in here, we'll see what happens. So that next year we can once again have 30 games in Savannah like we have since the team's inception uh, in 2016, but also get, get a few more folks into the mecca of banana ball along the way. All right, final thing for you, Biko. I don't think I'm going to see a guy in stilts batting for the Yankees anytime soon. I don't think so. But what are the lessons that Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball, for that matter, can take from what the Savannah Bananas do night in and night out? Well, I think the key to it is the speed, right? So when the Bananas were still selling out all of these games, there was always a strive for a higher level of greatness, and that led to taking pictures of the stadium at different times in the night and seeing when fans would trickle out, no no matter how amazing the show is. Um, And that was always around the two-hour time limit, which is why we were like, oh, two hours seems like a pretty good number to put on uh, baseball. And all of a sudden, you see with the meteoric rise of this, this experience and this team, now Major League Baseball has put a timer on batters. So like they have already seen what speed can do and they're averaging under two hours, 40 minutes a game this year, up down from about 310 uh, in the past. All of a sudden they made the bases bigger because action is awesome. That's why we outlawed bunting because we want to see people swing the bat. So now like you are already seeing banana balls effect on Major League Baseball. And there was all kinds of things behind the scenes in effect in the minors and the other affiliate leagues they have that uh, we're building to this, but it's, it's convenient timing that Major League Baseball got a facelift right when the Bananas embarked on this 87-game tour. So I think in general, like the speed is an important part of it and, and being able to have an idea of when folks can go home and get the kids to sleep. Uh, but the most important part is fun. It's just like it's having fun. It's, it's taking away the corporate side of it and just realizing that like, hey, whatever we're doing, we're entertaining people and we're creating lifelong memories. And that's why all the major leaguers who come by, for the most part, say that this is the most fun they've ever had playing the sport that they dedicated their careers to because uh, it's back to its roots and backyard baseball. It's just backyard baseball with 10,000 plus fans and in crazy atmosphere and both teams really wanting to win. It's the hottest ticket in town, that's for sure. And uh, for those that aren't going to get to experience it at NBT Bank Stadium or Cooperstown, you guys are certainly easy enough to find on social media or everywhere on TikTok and everything. But where can we find your broadcast of the games and get a sense of, of how, and I don't know how you broadcast these games. Because you just don't know what's coming, right? You are just constantly reacting to some of the craziest stuff you'll ever see in your life. And that is a hell of a skill that you have there, my friend. But where is, uh, where is the broadcast for people if they want to check it out? YouTube. It Let's is go. YouTube. Yeah, so the Savannah Bananas, uh, check them out on YouTube. We're over 700,000 subscribers, which we're fired up about. Um, living in the subscriber game these days. We were under 100,000 before the tour, so that has been super cool. Once in a while, you can catch us on ESPN2 or Nesson or, or wherever folks want to put us on uh, the traditional television. But yeah, every single one except for three of our games is for free to watch on YouTube. So awesome. uh, it's, it's pretty cool. We, we have a blast on there. Biko, good stuff, buddy. Good to see you, man. Savannah Bananas, this is the man behind the mic. It is taking sports by storm, and we're glad to see it here in Syracuse this week. Oh, but wait, there's just one more thing. You know, this week was the 22nd anniversary of 9-11, and I think as the years fade out and a younger generation can't really connect with what that day means, it's important to tell these stories and to continue to remember. You know, what do we say? When 9-11 comes up, never forget. And for those that went through it and experienced it and those that unfortunately lost loved ones in 9-11, they certainly 
we'll never forget. But I think we all kind of have a 9-11 story. And mine has a lot to do with sports. And it's something I think about every year on this day. And I guess it's something that really connects me to that date and, and forever will. And there is a sports theme to it. So in 2001, I was the play-by-play announcer for Utica College football, amongst my uh, other duties in working in radio in Utica at the time. So one of our first games after 9-11 was at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy in Connecticut. Can you imagine being on a military base less than a month after 9-11 as the world changed around us? To say the least, it was absolutely surreal. So we went through an extensive security check. We were there on campus early, so I had a little extra time to walk around before the game on campus. Now, it is a gorgeous fall day in Connecticut, crisp, clear, sun shining, leaves changing, just that poetic fall scene, right? But we were all still in a fog. We were wondering if we should be there. We should. We are sitting here wondering if a football game should even be played here. And this is about a month after 9-11, and everybody's just kind of trying to figure out what to do and how to do it and how to go forward. What I saw that day were young men and women that moved with purpose. They walked and, tie, walked and talked, pardon me, with pride and discipline. And what the country was going through was what they were trained to handle, and they were eager to serve. Now, I was 23 years old at the time. These men and women are my age, getting ready to serve a bigger purpose for this country. I was there to call a football game, right? That puts you in your place and the perspective of the great freedoms we get to enjoy in this country and the people around me were getting ready to serve this country. I'm going to be honest with you. The first thought that popped in my head on September 11th, 2001, I was going to war. I thought they would reenact the draft and one thing would lead to the next and the United States would it'd be at some massive war with somebody, which ended up being the case, of course, afterwards with Afghanistan and Iraq that came afterwards. I thought I'd be drafted and you have to go out and fight, even though that was not something that I intended to do. By the way, I'll never forget this. My dad, you know, the first thing he did on 9-11 after everything went down, he tried to reenlist in the Marines. Semper Fi, right? Once a Marine, always a Marine. So we went on to call the game. It will forever be one of the most beautiful views I've ever seen at a sporting event. So the Coast Guard Academy overlooks the Thames River in Connecticut, and there's Coast Guard cutters and all kinds of ships just floating by. And I, I will never forget that day for that. But I always think of those cadets when 9-11 comes around. And here we are 22 years later. Where are they? What are they doing? How are they still serving their country? Are they still in the Coast Guard Academy? What are the stories that have come from the young men and women that snapped me back into place that day and went on to serve their country as uh, they wanted to? And at a time when we really needed people to sacrifice and serve this country. So I am forever grateful to them and everybody that chooses to serve this country. And of course, we're thinking of everybody who has a tough time around this time of the year when 9-11 comes around. And we certainly will never forget. Well, we thank you for watching and listening to episode 11 of Syracuse Sports. It is presented by Krause Health. Krause Health is the exclusive health care provider of Syracuse Athletics. We thank Biko Scala from the Syrac- uh, Savannah Bananas for joining us here, who will be in Syracuse later this week. And we thank you, of course, for watching and listening, being a part of the show. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, YouTube. 
Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts. You can hit me on voicemail at 315-552-1964 or hit us on Twitter, Brent Axe Media. And the email address to get in touch is B-A-X-E at Syracuse.com. We will be back uh, later this week with Noah Eagle, who will be calling the Syracuse-Purdue game as the Orange step into primetime. No more hiding on ACC Network Extra. Syracuse playing before the whole country against Purdue on Saturday. And just a reminder about our Syracuse football postgame shows that we're doing after every game. Did one after Colgate. Did one after Western Michigan. We're going to keep on cranking through every Syracuse football game. We'll have a postgame show for you up first thing Sunday morning after the game for you to listen to. So that's coming up after the Purdue game. All to come here on Syracuse Sports. Thanks for checking out the show, guys.